Hello and welcome to The Gateway Presents on CGSR-FM 88.5 Edmonton. I'm Victoria Chu, online editor of The Gateway, the University of Alberta's official campus media source run by students for students. Every two weeks, we cover news, opinion, and arts and culture-related topics that are pertinent to students and to campus. Thanks for tuning in. We're starting off with our news segment. Enjoy. My name is Nathan Fung, and I'm the news editor of The Gateway. Um, today, I'm joined by Tracy Baer, an assistant professor cross-appointed with the Faculty of Native Studies and the Department of Women and Gender Studies, and I'll be talking for today about the Indigenous Women and Youth Resilience Project. Mm-hmm. So thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Nathan. Um, nice to be here. Yeah. I guess to start off, um, uh, could you start off by talking a little bit about the project and what is it about? Sure. Uh, The project came about um, after the TRC came out with their series of recommendations. And as you know, post-secondary institutions across Canada are looking to see how they can um, better their relationship with Indigenous people through reconciliation. And so there were some funds available through the Office of the Provost. Uh, The dean at the time, Brendan Hokofitu, um, accessed them. And uh, I was just starting off as an assistant professor and asked me if I wanted to head up a resilience project or a reconciliation project. And uh, to be honest, I said, no, thanks. Oh. <laughs> Sounds great, but no, thanks. Um, I'm having difficulty as an Indigenous person with the word reconciliation at the moment. Seems to be a lot of words. Um, so uh, he's like, well, what would you like to do? And I said, you know, um, I'm not against reconciliation, but how about we explore the practical side of what reconciliation might be, and let's focus on Indigenous women and youth, and uh, look at the resilience and resistance that we see within there, and give back to talking about that. So um, so that's how the project of uh, resilience um, started at the faculty. Uh, I have a coordinator, Sarah Howdell, who also works with me, and uh, so we do a lot of amazing things there. Okay. So what year was this again? I, bl- I believe the TRC ended in 2015. Mm-hmm. And then the recommendations came out, and then, of course, funding followed after that. So uh, the project got off the ground uh, July 1st of last year, and then we hired Sarah in August. Okay. Um so I was reading about your project, and I understand a part of it has to do with resilience theory. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that might be confusing to some people. So could you, could you explain a little bit about like what resilience theory is, mm-hmm. and what does it mean in the context of your project? Absolutely. Uh, so indigenous, um, to back up a little bit, there is a um, a lot of theory on resilience. Uh, human beings, you know, ever since we could record things and talk about things, we have had resilience, right? Uh, So what makes Indigenous resilience stand apart from that? Uh, It's really important to note that thus far from what we've been gathering and what we've been reading, that Indigenous resilience is quite a different animal than um, resilience in itself. And by that, Indigenous resilience means um, we think a lot about community, and we think a lot about accountability to that community and our responsibilities as as Indigenous people. So uh, as we're going through and um, 
reading on resilience and looking at some of our survey results, what we're finding is that for Indigenous people, resiliency depends upon community. It also depends on how accountable we are to our communities. Okay. Um, So going back to your project, so part of it is having a survey out there to get stories from the community about stories of resilience, right? Yes, absolutely, yeah. So um, thanks for mentioning that, Nathan. So we have a website. It's... um, www.indigenouswomensresilience.com and uh, I invite Indigenous people to go on there. There is a short survey that people can take um, and then there's a longer survey if you have more to say on the topic. And we're also doing uh, individual interviews as well as group interviews Um, and so we're gaining a lot of material from that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Do you know, like, could you put a number as to how many, like, responses you've gotten so far? Um, I haven't checked. I've been a, we just organized a big (laughs) symposium this beginning September, so we haven't um, been checking on the, on the survey as of yet. But uh, one of the interesting things about uh, looking at a theory of Indigenous resilience is um, universities are well known for creating theories and, and pushing through on theory. But one of the things that we found really important is not only to have a theory, but put that theory into practice. And so if we're talking about Indigenous resilience theory, what does that mean in practice? Mm -hmm. What that means is creating a community, making networks, establishing relationships with people. Uh, Community doesn't necessarily have to mean a reserve. It doesn't necessarily mean a Métis settlement. But we do have a community on campus. And so what we wanted to do was to bolster that already existing community by having holding community um, events. Um, One of the events we had was a ribbon skirt making. It was a two-day workshop. So ribbon skirt is important in uh, many Indigenous cultures um, um, and very contemporary. And so uh, we had people sign up to make a ribbon skirt and to also hear teachings from two of our um, noted cultural workers. And so... When you have something like that happen on campus and you have people get together and they're they're sewing, they're laughing, they're eating food, that creates a stronger community on campus. As you know, uh, Indigenous people are underrepresented here on campus, and so it's mm-hmm. nice to have uh, a gathering like that to celebrate some of our cultural teachings. Okay. So those are the kind of stories that you're looking for, sort of, like the community-building stories? Um, well, no, we we really wanted to keep the surveys quite open-ended. Um, as you probably can appreciate, um, resilience and resistance comes in all sorts of shapes and forms. We have amazingly strong leaders like uh, Sylvia McAdam, uh, who one of the co-founders of Idle No More, who definitely show us what resistance is. They show us what resilience is in a, a very real, very public way. Um, some of the stories that we're also looking for is some of them that people might not think are exact resilient stories. So, for instance, we open up the door for people to talk about um, ways in which they are resilient. It, it could be you're the oldest in a family of four and you're the ones that get your siblings up in the morning. You're the one that feeds them breakfast and you're the one that mm. takes them to school. That is an incredibly resilient thing to do. It may not be, you might not be the co-founder of Idle No More, but it doesn't mean you're not making a difference in your siblings' lives or your life. So we're open um, up to all those types of stories as well. 
okay. And um, so the idea of the survey is to gather stories like that, mm-hmm. like those. And then um, what are the next steps with that project? Next steps. So um, we're obviously we'd like a few more people to do the survey to get a real breadth of it, um, of knowledge and, and what constitutes this idea of resiliency. Mm-hmm. And so that we can find, you know, stronger patterns in there. Um, we're already finding, of course, that there is that uh, strong pattern of accountability to community, as I as I said before. But we're also open up to all sorts of stories. So we're hoping for a few more people to participate in the survey. Um, sorry, tell me what your question was again. Um, I guess the other thing, too, is like, when does the survey end? Right. Um, it'll end probably um, next April. Then we can compile the... Um, compile the the data and uh, come out with some papers. Okay. I just want to jump back a bit to um, talk a little bit more about the um, sort of rationale behind some of the, this, um, this project. Mm. And um, I believe you told uh, a colleague of mine that this also partially has to do with how media currently covers Indigenous women. Mm. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? And, what you, and like, um, yeah, and, like, how... I think what you, you told my uh, colleague was that um, media only covers like big name events like I don't know more, but like a lot of the smaller stories get like um, no notice. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as a journalist yourself, you probably, you know, we all understand the um, term if it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes as an Indigenous woman, it, it seems that that seems to be very true. Um, I don't see. Uh, as much representation of positive stories about Indigenous women as other news stories. And uh, there seems to be a um, a larger um, component of negative news about Indigenous women and uh, girls. So we want to add to the voices who are already talking about positive influences of amazing Indigenous women and youth who are doing amazing work in this country um, in, in their little areas um, and hopefully being able to um, uh, not only use our survey as one of those, um, um, an evidence of the resilience of Indigenous women, but also to uplift and bolster some of the projects and things that are already going on today. Okay. Um, and so when the survey ends, um, uh, what's the plan to do with them? Are you, uh, like, how are you gonna, do you have a, like, are you thinking of like making those stories sort of like public to like digestible to like um, the mass audience, for example, or something like that? Um, we actually have an amazing advisory group for, for our project. And so that's something that we're going to be talking with them about. Uh, some of the stories are highly personal. Mm-hmm. Some, they're all extremely powerful and would be really useful, but, uh, respecting people's privacies and what they've shared is really important to us as, as you can understand there's ethics involved in that. So, um, negotiating our way into what stories we can tell and share is, is important but also getting the word out about the resiliency of Indigenous people. Um, so we'll put that to our advisory group. Okay. <laughs> Another thing I think you um, you told, um, I believe, the CB, um, in the CBC's article on this, on this project is mm-hmm. that, like, a lot of these personal stories are sort of taken for granted in terms of, like, from a pedagogy point of view. Like, they're not taken as, like, serious knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Um not a lot of people think that perhaps just the ability to 
feed your siblings or, or, or take them to school would necessarily be something that's resilience or resistance, right? But uh, it takes courage and things that take courage and strength are, are part of what makes up resiliency, right? Um, and so it's important to um, touch on those stories as well because they make us who we are. And so you're feeding your siblings one day and getting them up and the next thing you know, you know, you're completing a PhD or, you know, you're, you're doing those things. So it's really important to make sure uh, Indigenous people, uh, especially women and youth, know that those little things that they do every day are incredibly important in the everyday lives, just as much as I don't know more is, but keeping, keeping your family safe, happy and healthy is, um, it's not an easy thing to do in this day and age. And so we, we want to give our hats off to those type of people and uplift those types of stories as well. Okay. So resilience, I guess the message of your project is that resilience isn't just like the big protest movement, but it's also those tiny little stories from day to day and stuff like that, those daily experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, um, you know, we can build a theory as uh, as easily as anyone else but uh, the important part of the project is also to put that theory into practice right and so what does that look like Um, so many of the things that we've done in and around campus reflect that idea of community building relationship building and accountability so putting theory into practice and practice into theory is always a good thing okay there was also that symposium that you mentioned that was earlier in September can you talk a little bit more about that as well Sure, man, that symposium was incredible. Um, a lot of us um, have been to conferences and, and uh, we, there's a lot to take away, obviously, from them and they're, they're valuable. But what one of the number one complaints that I, I feel I get from my fellow Nietzsche's or my fellow uh, Indigenous people we don't get enough time to talk to each other about each other's work. And so part of this conference was looking at the... Um, um, anti-colonial ways of being in colonial spaces. And so we looked at hospitals, um, post-secondary institutions, um, the medical field. And we looked at all the different Indigenous people who are working in that field and the types of uh, resiliencies that they're seeing and the types of resistances that they're seeing. And so we brought them together, these scholars, and they were able to, um, we kept enough space for them to connect and to relate to each other and perhaps make those connections. So that was a really important part of the symposium is, is making sure that people got connected with other like-minded people. Okay, so you're not just talking about resilience and like being able to like um, survive from day to day, but also in like different colonial institutions like the university itself, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So it's not just like outside the university, it's also within the halls here, like indigenous students who are underrepresented in each faculty and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely, for sure. And uh, the students are where a lot of our surveys come from, survey um, the questionnaires come from uh, is their knowledge. And, you know, we have such a variety of students on campus. We have, you know, from 17 years old, uh, single, um, to, you know, mature students who mm-hmm. have children at home that are, you know, working a job and going to school and raising children. So all of those voices are, are really diverse, and it's really important to get those um, voices heard. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's all I had um, in mind for questions, but is there anything else that I may have missed or anything you want to add? Uh, yes. So I just want to read a little blurb. Um, 
This project confronts violence against Indigenous women and youth by surveying Indigenous practices of survival and resilience, framing these knowledges as a method to create change in ourselves, in our communities, and policies of government. We compile and map these perspectives to construct an Indigenous theory of resilience by asking what Indigenous resiliency looks like and how these knowledges can help end violence against women and youth. So, take the online survey at www.indigenouswomensresilience.com and we would be ever so grateful. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Nathan. That was The Gateway Presents' news segment. You're listening to CJSR-FM 88.5 Edmonton. Next up, we have our opinion segment. My name is Andrew McQuinney, and I'm the opinion editor here at The Gateway. Last time on The Gateway Presents, myself, Pia Ko, Atar Vora, and Dane Beliveau discussed whether we should ban controversial speakers from campus. Part of that conversation led us to talk about Jordan Peterson. Peterson is a psychology professor at the University of Toronto. He became infamous for his opposition to Bill C-16, an amendment to the Canada Human Rights Act designed to include gender identity and expression as prohibited forms of discrimination. He's currently on tour promoting his self-help book, 12 Rules for Life. What do we think about the possibility of Jordan Peterson speaking on campus? A quick preface. Contrary to what we said in our discussion, Peterson isn't coming to the Northern Jubilee Auditorium in November. He's actually coming in December to the Southern Jubilee Auditorium in Calgary. Jordan Peterson, of course, is one of the most controversial speakers in Canada right now, has been for a few years for multiple reasons. I was kind of captivated by the idea that people may protest having him on campus, but he's come and spoken at tons of places all across the country. Would you want to have somebody like Jordan Peterson speak on campus? Would you rather him speak off of campus or just maybe not even have that platform at all? Yeah, no, I definitely think he should and would be an important person to have on campus. I think he's been in a large part demonized and his uh, arguments have been twisted. I think he's almost been a shining example of how to properly conduct yourself in an academic discourse. He's never been he's never been rude, he's never been blatantly offensive or attempted to be offensive. Maybe maybe there's a particular instance that I'm missing out on, but at least the talks that I've seen him do, he's he's calm, he presents logical opinions. I mean, the people who oppose him are are a lot less uh, I guess contained and seemingly respectful in, in conversation than him. And I think I'd also point out that I feel like he became controversial for the wrong reasons. He made an objection to, and I guess I'm mainly addressing the Bill C-16 um, aspect, which was his largest issue, but he addressed a piece of legislation because it endangered free speech as he saw it. And the fact that the issue happened to have transgenderism and I guess that whole issue in it kind of, like as he said, it almost got caught in the crossfire. It was more than less beside the point. So I mean, I've seen absolutely terrible videos of people protesting and saying awful, awful things about him. And he's like, (laughs) that wasn't even the group I was aiming at. Not that he was trying to aim at a group, but I just think that's an important thing to address. And that can be extended with other controversial speakers that people hear something and immediately twist it so they can, I guess, have means to object against them. Jordan Peterson is known for a short temper. <laughs> a lot of the times that he has been uh, pretty inflammatory about what he's been saying about certain uh, people. Like, for example, his accusations against the leftists have been quite substantially, like, uh, targeted and attacking. But at the same time, like, 
I have to agree. He's one of the people you see on uh, who's been under the crossfire for a long time, but he has maintained civility as much as possible. I've seen a lot of interviews, and I agree with you, Dane, that uh, in a lot of the interviews, it's often that the people who are interviewing him turn out to be really aggressive and emotionally attacked, and they take it out on him on air and on video. But then again, like that's the whole point of controversy. Like when people, it gets inflated to the point where people are grouping together protesting against this one person for what he says. But again, you have to put into light the fact that all he wanted to do was say that I don't want my word choice preference to be in the to not be in the law. That's basically what he was saying against C-16 is that he was saying that I don't want to be forced to use gender neutral pronouns or or something of that sort. Other than that, like Jordan Peterson's coming to the Northern Jubilee Auditorium. He's coming there for his book tour. He's coming there to promote 12 Rules of Life, which, in my opinion, I've read some of the, some of the chapters in it. And he has some good points. Like, I think some of them are pretty motivational. Like, I think one of the chapters was, assume that the person in front of you has knows something you don't, which I think is a great philosophy. Like, something you can learn from. And this guy, like, he's a smart dude, okay? Like, he has, he has like, a lot of knowledge. He's been studying for a long time. He's a clinical psychologist. He's helped, people, he's helped people out of depression and anxiety. And he's helped them get it back on their feet. So I don't think he's a morally corrupt human being at any sort or value. He just has opinions. And I think that he's made it very clear what his viewpoint on free speech is. If you went around and met any other guy or any other person, any other woman, any other trans person who has similar views to him, would you attack them the same way? I think that this guy is also in the end a dude and sure he's pretty famous because of the entire C-16 incident, but he's coming to Northern Jubilee to promote his book, let him promote his book. And if you're bringing up stuff about gender inequality and stuff on his during his book tour, that's a different story, but let him do what's come to do. I think the original question is whether or not he should have a platform. Firstly, I think it's valid for him to have a platform. For him to come to the Northern Jubilee makes sense. But for this to be something endorsed by the campus is something completely and entirely different. I think that if we are to look at Jordan Peterson's track record, I actually disagree with the claim that he hasn't been inflammatory. I agree that he has been inflammatory to a degree. I think that another problem with the way that he conducts himself is he posits that the only way to frame meaningful thought and meaningful philosophy is through academia, is through objective reasoning. And he posits that there's only really one valid way of objective reasoning, and that actually necessarily uh, excludes emotional thought and emotions, right? I think that there's a problem with him in a university campus saying that he won't, he refuses to respect something that is very fundamentally important to students. I think that it is the onus of professors, it's the onus of people who work in academia to make sure that the people who are learning in their classes are comfortable enough to be in those spaces to be able to learn. I think that if you're pers- if you feel as though your personhood is not being respected, it is absolutely too difficult to, very difficult at the very least, to have like a meaningful classroom experience, a meaningful academic experience. And in a lot of cases, Jordan Peterson had classes that had like 400 kids in them. Like they weren't small classes. I think at the end of the day, if our campus community wants to posit that it is safe, that academic discourse necessarily means a lot of things, which also means that, you know, emotions and the way in which people feel is just as valid as objective reasoning, that Jordan Peterson doesn't actually necessarily reflect that value. I think that the ways in which he formulates opinions, that academic reasoning is the only right way to look upon things, necessarily shuts out so many people who don't have access to academia. And a lot of his support 
supporters then use that as ammunition. That is to say, like, what I believe is better thought out than yours is. What I believe is objective, therefore, what you believe is actually not valid at all. And I think that that's a problem that I've at least encountered. So as to whether or not he should be able to promote his book to be able to speak in Edmonton, I believe that he can. I believe people can pay money to see him. I believe that he can have that space. But for the university to have him, I don't believe that that's something that we should we should consider to be okay. Yeah, I just want to address, I guess, some miscellaneous points around this whole thing. First off, I guess it's a bit subjective as to whether his critiques of Marxism and postmodernism, those seem to be the two terms he uses the most for the radical left, if you will. I, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying is it it's inflammatory. You know, he certainly uses, you know, reprehensible and it's and whatnot. You know, he, he gives some very, I guess, potent examples. It's something he's studied for a long period of time. And I think there's also a bit of a double standard because if he was attacking the far right, people would be okay with these inflammatory comments. Well, or I at least think that would be. I don't think that's unreasonable to say. And then also, maybe this is a bit subjective too, but I would have thought that the goal of universities, I mean, our motto or banner or whatever, you know, whatsoever is true is to push forward, I guess, academic dialect is the word I've been using. But a big part of academia, I think, was that you put your emotions aside and you use your brain power to solve a problem. You collect information and you try and solve that. That being said, I think emotions are important. I don't think emotions are the way in which we should reason. And maybe that's a whole other debate in itself. But I think we need to make a distinction between the importance of considering emotions and uh, the importance of setting aside personal bias or group bias or whatever in addressing an issue. I actually read um, one of Jordan Peterson's papers that he wrote a while ago. I'm not going to lie, I did not feel compelled by his paper at all. Like, his paper was pretty, really bad. But, like, he's grown over time, too, as a person and as an uh, as a professor. And at the, at the U of T, I agree, like, that's it's been something of uh, massive discourse, right, the, the point where he has this class of, like, lots of people, and he's been uh, making sure his views are very open-ended and uh, addressed at a massive scale. But I'm just going to ask you, Pia, yeah, a question. So Neil Gaiman's coming to Edmonton in a while. If Neil Gaiman was secretly okay a blessing so I hate you for saying this but like um but if if Neil Gaiman is is secretly this massive conservative guy and he does not feel like feminism is at all important um but he does not like make it public would you still allow him to come to campus and talk about writing studies and talking about advancing literature and advancing the study of critical analysis literature I just want to defend conservatism insofar as I don't think every conservative thinks that feminism is, like, not valid. So I don't think that's necessarily the problem. But, like, if Neil Gaiman is to give a talk subjectively or, sorry, objectively about the best way in which to write things and he never mentions his his opinions about this particular social issue, I feel like that's fine. I I feel like that's different. I think it's really important for me to posit this. It is literally impossible for anyone to be unbiased. It's literally impossible for anyone to be not emotional, even if Jordan Peterson tries to claim that he is. Uh, I just want to read a quote that he said, actually, that I remember in a video. He was kind of referring to how it's really difficult for men to debate with women because of uh, social norms. And he said, that's forbidden in the discourse with women. So I don't think that men can control crazy women. I really don't believe it. And for him to to say things like that, for him to posit that women who stand up for their own opinions are necessarily crazy, but the way in which he shapes his opinions because there's this like false facade that he's like unbiased, that everything he does 
as academic. I think that's like the primary reason for someone like Jordan Peterson, I think, would not be a great person to have on campus. Just I think specifically him. But if we were to say a controversial speaker, such as someone who thinks that uh, medically assisted death is something that is like absolutely unacceptable. I think that's completely different that we're, we're contesting like how to best fulfill an axiom. If life is precious, some people who are pro-made might say, thus, if life is precious, people should be able to live that their life to the best extent in which they want to experience it. Someone anti-made might say, life is precious, so we shouldn't allow people to end their lives arbitrarily or for whatever reason they believe. I think that that's a good example of controversy. I don't think that Jordan Peterson fulfills that criteria that I strongly believe believe in and I think a lot of people believe in. So at the end of the day, again, Jordan Peterson on campus, no, him in public, sure. Quick thing. He's used crazy in multiple facets, first of all. Um, he's mm-hmm. also used crazy in, uh, when he's talking. He's often talked about like his job with uh, female lawyers. Like he's, been, he's helped some really, and he's respected like, on, on air, some really uh, amazing female lawyers. He's credited them on air, and he thinks they're absolutely fantastic people, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying that, like, I, I think it's wrong to assume that Jordan Peterson's hate females or like the entire agenda. I think that he just he's just against the insane, uninformed push behind feminism. That's what I that's what I feel from I'm looking at this not through my viewpoint, but yeah. through Jordan Peterson's viewpoint, right? Um I think that he just doesn't like the the informed activists and the people who are pushing this as like a revolution, which it should be, ideally speaking, and it is, but he doesn't like uninformed opinions and that's what he doesn't like as a guy of academia. But other than that, like, Jordan Peterson is coming to the Northern Jubilee to promote his book. Again, 12 Rules of Life, mm-hmm. which which is like a, it's a book. If he brings in the topics that are really attacking somebody, then I think students have all the right to go in there and protest. Like, that's that's what freedom of speech is. Like, it's if they want to protest, go ahead and do it. It's sidelining the fact that I think we should listen to the person's speech first. But, like, if they want to protest, it's all up to them. Like, go ahead and protest, Right. I personally would listen to what it says, then I'll protest if I want to. But, like, he's promoting his book. Like, that's all he's coming to do. If he brings up some really aggressive points, then go ahead and protest, but let him speak on campus. Just to take a step back earlier, you're right in saying that Jordan Peterson's not completely unbiased. You're right. It's it's, it's a human um, impossibility. We're not computers. We can't just take information and put it back out objectively. I think his and the general academic goal is you limit that as much as you possibly can. I mean, this is why we have things like peer review. If maybe, I guess, 10% of a particular claim is instantiated by bias, then we have other people say, okay, well, maybe that's a little bit because you individually. And to go back on the crazy woman, he is, and he said this a bunch of times himself, that he is very, very careful in what he says. So I don't think he, or I don't think it would be reasonable to claim that he was saying that feminists are crazy or whatever. I I think if he's addressing crazy women, it's these people who are, I guess, the definition of crazy, out of control, and whether or not a man, I'm not sure if the context was in a relationship or societally or or whatever, can reasonably deal with that. Again, maybe I need a little bit more contextual information for this, but 
I don't think it's so provocative or controversial if we're still using that word that he shouldn't be allowed to speak on campus rather than in public. I actually think there's a fundamental problem with the word crazy, and especially if you're using it in a way to address people who disagree with you. If Jordan Peterson wants to put himself forward as an academic, isn't it simply easier to say women who disagree with me as opposed to crazy women? I think that there's almost ammunition in the way in which we... And if he is to also claim that the words that he used are carefully selected, I think that says a lot about what he's putting forward. I don't think, and maybe we're arguing around a point that can't really be solved without the video or whatever, but um, I don't think the crazy was directed at people he disagrees with. I think crazy was the deliberate word choice of someone who is out of control. And I agree, maybe crazy isn't the best word. He is careful in his word choice, but he's not perfect. No one is. I mean, you're inevitably going to make some mistakes. And I think if that's only one, and maybe that's not the only one, but if there is only one or two specific examples of times where maybe he could have reworded how he said, considering like the plethora of content he's put out, whether it's through his own channel or other things, I think that's there's not really appropriate grounds to make that claim that he's being unacademic or is unprofessional by using that language. This is what I think I failed to put forward a while ago. I think that in a lot of ways, academia really does have to make room for emotions. And I think that it does because a lot of our ethical systems and values and beliefs, which I think influence science, the way in which we do social science and even fine arts, that we have an ethic kind of like prescribed to what is appropriate in an academic setting. And at the end of the day, it is actually an emotional thing, I think, that is fundamental to how we approach these things, that it's anthropomorphic, that people are really important and that people should be advancing people specifically is is what the goal of any academia is and i think that that has like a very emotional basis because like in nature what really separates like a fish from a person right i think that if we are to agree that academia and i this is something that i strongly believe that academia is anthropomorphic then that means that at the end of the day our ethics are emotional so with that said, that means like basically every speaker on campus has like an ethical, po- they're positing something ethical. The ways in which Jordan Peterson does it, I think is unnecessarily inflammatory. And I think that leads to debate that isn't quite meaningful in academic settings because he doesn't share a lot of axioms that a lot of university students hold, at least especially in like, I think at the U of A. So in that, I think he's a bit of a hypocrite if he wants to put forward that he's objective and that he doesn't use any emotion. I just don't buy that at all. I think that I don't necessarily agree with what you just said. I think that there's there have been a lot of incidences. I think one of the most famous famous interview interviews of him where if you just look at him, right, the way he sits back and he's really relaxed with what he's talking about. And I think that what he really wants to get across, I think he definitely is objective in his speech. There's bias, 100% sure there is bias. But from a very unbiased perspective, from a top view perspective, if you just measure, try to identify the points that he's making that, in that interview. And in that interview, like his points, he kept pushing stats so hard. He's a psychoanalytic guy, right? That's where his, that's where he's trained at. And he, he loves statistics. And that's what he looks at the entire time. Now, I'm not saying that some statistics have really, really crazy, like kind of conclusion points like that the lobster entire analogy was absolute garbage in my opinion but like apart from that like he he's made points that are very statistically oriented and all of his points have not been from bias from 
by a standpoint, that's what I'm saying. Uh, his points have not definitely been from a aggressive viewpoint. I think his, his viewpoints have definitely been based in whatever statistics he understands and knows. I think what he really wants to have is an academic discourse where people have read about, you know, Eric Burns' transaction analysis, read about Jungian psychology, read about uh, Freudian, uh, psycho- Freudian psychology. And like, then he wants to really talk in depth about, I think what he really wants is like a proper academic discourse. That's what he, that's what I always feel he's looking for when he goes to his news channel to promote his book and everything else. That was our conversation on Jordan Peterson. My name is Andrew McQuinney, opinion editor of The Gateway. Thanks so much for listening. That was The Gateway Presents' opinion segment. You're listening to CJSR-FM 88.5 Edmonton. Next up, sit back and enjoy our arts and culture section. just listening to a portion of Logan Shorney's sound design for Lennons and Balmers. Lennons and Balmers is opening the studio theater season in the Tim Center for the Arts, starting on October 11th and running till October 20th. I'm Jonah Dunch, the arts and culture editor of The Gateway, and I'm joined in the studio by Alexander Donovan, the director of Lennons and Balmers and an MFA directing candidate at the University of Alberta. Alex, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jonah. So, Alex, why don't you start by giving our audience a sense of what Lennons and Balmers is about? Sure. So it's about the true story. Uh, I use true in air quotes, if you can imagine that, of uh, the two Jewish scientists who embalmed Vladimir Lenin in the 1920s. So it follows their life story, um, as well as chronicling Stalin's um, rise to power, essentially. So is this a drama? Is this a, a comedy, a dramedy? Tell me so about it, it lives in the world of dark comedy um, in the sense that the Russians have a saying where what makes us laugh makes you cry. Um, and it very much lives in that world where the subject matter is certainly not light. Um, any play with Stalin and it isn't going to be a you know, cheery, fun time. But at the same time, it is a, just a barrel of laughs the entire time because... You know, Vern Thiessen, the playwright, he's, um, it's a very personal play for him because his grandparents, um, well, two of his grandfathers were taken to the gulag. Um, one came back while the other didn't. And so, but even through that, his entire family, his parents, everyone that he's known, his family, they have the best sense of humor. 
Um, so even with all of this hardship that they go through, they never lack the means to laugh about it. So he wanted to kind of honor that in this piece. And so this play is very much a comedy, despite having tragic elements within it. But I'm really curious to see what the audience will think of it, because the first half certainly presents itself as a full-on comedy, whereas the second half still retains all of the tonal elements from the comedic first half, but starts to go into a direction of tragedy. And so I'll be curious to see how people take that and what their reactions are with that. <laughs> now, Alex, could you tell me what drew you specifically mm -hmm. as a director to this piece? Sure. I, I first read this piece a number of years ago when I was in my undergraduate degree working on my minor in theater at the time. Um, and when I first read it, I thought, no way can I ever do this. It was too complicated. It had a lot of people in it. I, you know, I was working with volunteer actors at that point, so even getting three volunteer actors was like a miracle. Um, so I kind of put it aside, but I really loved it when I read it because I've, I've always been a big fan of comedy. I've done stand-up comedy. I've, I've, I've made sketch comedy films. I've got a series of those that I do. I, was, I do sketch comedy kind of web series sort of deal. Like comedy was always something I was really, I really loved. And, and history is also my big passion. I mean, that's what I did my degree in was in history. And I knew a lot about the Soviet Union but I didn't know this particular story, and it was kind of one of those you know, too wild to be true, but the kind of thing that shocked me was that when I read the, the actual book that this is based on, <laughs> it's really the wild stuff that you think, nah, no way, that's the true stuff, and a lot of the things that aren't true are mostly just like little tiny plot, like not even really plot details, just like, oh, we're changing the order in which things happen, and things happen a little faster in this story than they do in real life, but a lot of the big things are legitimately how it happened, which is pretty crazy. So, yeah, that's kind of what, what had me. The story gripped me from the start, and I thought it was a really fun story, and I thought it was very theatrical. It's a very theatrical play in the sense that I don't know if there's any other way to tell this story um, as effectively as it's, as it's doing, or at least in the way that it is telling it. You could probably tell it somehow on film or something. In fact, The Death of Stalin is a movie that's sort of like a seems like a spiritual sequel to this one in some ways but even then that movie i find hits a note and then sort of can't sustain it all the way through because it's kind of a one note piece whereas this is fast furious um ever changing and moving in only a way theater can do you have to go to location 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 and the reality is you know, in theater, you don't have to go to those different places. You just are in them as the scene begins, which is really nice. So it's very non-realism, which I absolutely love. Now, Alex, um, one interesting aspect of your particular production of this play mm -hmm. is that Vern Thiessen, the playwright, and mm -hmm. also the artistic director of Workshop West Playwrights Theater in Edmonton, is in your cast. He's playing yeah. Lennon. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, it's pretty great. It's sort of a funny story on that because... Um, when I propose this play, so for your thesis, you propose five shows. It gets narrowed down to three shows. Um, and usually of the five shows you propose, the last two are the ones that get cut anyway. So, and that's exactly what happened. And so this was in my top three. And once it got picked, you know, I couldn't really tell Vern uh, at the time because they want to keep their season quite secret uh, because there's a lot of students who get assigned to things. And if something has to change, they don't want people getting invested in a show that then does not happen. So I was, you know, very mum about the whole thing. Uh, but I had been working with Vern at the time as an intern at Workshop West, which was really quite fun. And it, it, it's, I look back at it, and again, I could be like, oh, there's a 
plot to this like it all worked out but really it was just kind of random i had heard of workshop west and how lovely it was to work there and they had they've produced such great plays and it's such a unique type of theater and i really wanted to be involved um and then when it came to and i kind of submitted my thesis as i got involved with them um and then once it got picked i thought well this is kind of perfect uh and apparently Vern, when he got the note like oh the university wants to do your play he was like i think i know who (laughs) he said yeah let's give him the rights kind of thing and uh from there on once i got to tell him um I, of course, asked him if he had any recommendations of actors who might be good for Stalin or Lenin, because in the MFA, you work with the BFA actors, but you get to hire into equity actors. And the reality is I'm from New Brunswick. I'm not from Edmonton. I kind of know the actors here in town, but even just I've only been here now for two years. And when you're in school, you don't do much else but school. Um, When I first got here, I watched a lot of shows. But even then, you just see a lot of the actors. You don't necessarily know the actors. So... He gave me a list of people, and when he gave me a list for Lennon as well, he kind of said, oh, and I obviously left myself off. And my, I was kind of like, wait a minute. Does he want to be in the show? Would he be in the show? <laughs> and then I started thinking about him as Lennon, and I was like, that really works really well. Um, and I'd seen him act the year before in The Fringe, so I knew he could do it, and he's quite good. And, I mean, he had a career as an actor well before he was writing plays. So I kind of like, you know, put it towards him. And he was a little like, I don't know, you know, busy guy, right? Artistic director of a freaking company and still a very uh, incredibly well-produced playwright. So not exactly a small load on that fellow's plate. Um, But regardless, uh, he said yes. And having him in the room has been incredible. And I knew that he would be there, you know, as playwright living in Edmonton, we would have had access to him, but there's a difference between having access to somebody and then that person actually being in your rehearsal hall. Um, and having him in the hall has been amazing because um, I think it's been fun for him too because he, he gets to look at his play through one character, which is very unusual for a play, right? You know, usually they have to look at the bigger picture. It's the same thing as a director whenever I get to act. It's like, oh, I get to just focus on one person today? This sounds great. <laughs> but um, having him in there has let us change the script a little bit. And we've got a slightly different ending, um, slightly different. uh, There's like some added moments here and there. Nothing humongous. The play um, really stands for itself. But just some things that we wanted to play around with and that he suggested that have been really working well. So what is it like having actors with different experience levels and also, mm-hmm. you know, yourself as a mm-hmm. student um, directing these very much mm-hmm. seasoned actors <laughs> and also, um, you know, these um, kids your own age or just about your own age oh, yeah. um, who They're are wor- learning my alongside age. you? <laughs> yeah, um, it's really interesting. I mean, in any process, you're going to have a variety of um, skill level and a variety of uh, just in general. But with this, it is quite unique. And I would say that really the only big difference is just that the professional actors tend to have a process. Um, And this is why I think it's actually so valuable for the BFA actors to have a chance to work with these um, artists because they get to see what their practice is and what their process is. Um, And that's something that we kind of tend to forget as artists particularly in theater because theater is this sort of nebulous thing there's no like formula for how to make theater per se you have there's forms that you can use but they actually never guarantee that it will be successful because you know theater is more than just technique it's also 
uh, art and art is very nebulous and it's emotional and it's it's something that can't necessarily be pinned down but at the same time you have to be able to have a process that you use that can replicate success at a certain level uh, and that's what my MFA program has let me do is develop my process in directing so that I'm no longer lost in the process or just working on intuition because intuition plays a large role in the creation of theater but you need to know um, how to put your intuition into words which is very difficult. I mean, how do you tell someone you can think like, oh, I know the scene has to happen this way, but how do I get the actors to get there on their own without me telling them what to do? And that's a difficult thing. And uh, at the same time as an actor, how do you give offers on a scene um, consistently that exists within the world um, and that allow you to continue to explore and play while not forgetting what you've done before? And you need that process. You need to know the techniques that you have. You need to train in different types of methods. Um, and you need to see what works for you. And a lot of these young actors are really starting to find that process. Um, and you can see it. I can see they're all at like a pretty even level, I would say, as for where they are in their process. And I have zero doubts that by the end of this year, they're going to have like quite a firm grasp on what that process is for each of them. So getting to watch them discover that in the rehearsal is really exciting. Um, but as for directing them, it's it really feels the same. It's just that sometimes I might offer a little bit more for, um, for the student actors, whereas... Um, for professional actors, they are offering up quite a few things. And, I mean, that's really no, like, I'm always hesitant when I talk about these things because I don't want it to seem like, oh, the actors, yeah, they don't know what they're doing yet kind of deal, which isn't true. It's just it's just lack of experience. And it's the same for me as a director. Um, I'm discovering my process. And so there are things that if I were 20 years older and have been working in this for um, years that I would just know and be able to offer that, might be a little more of a struggle for me right now. And I think it's really important that people understand that when you're um, in the rehearsal hall. So yeah, it's been a blast so far. <laughs> so Alex, if you had to pitch this play to um, some student walking down the hall who's never been inside the Tim Center, has perhaps never been to a professional theater <laughs> in Edmonton or anywhere else, how would you pitch the show to them? Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of interesting. I'm so far deep in it right now that I, I don't even know how to pitch things anymore. But I think what I would ask is the asking them really the question of, have you ever considered what you would like to leave behind um, and how you would like to do that? And then saying, okay, great. Now that you figured out what you want to leave behind, let's imagine a world where everything has been ripped out underneath you. You don't understand who has power in this world anymore. You don't even know if there's like cops exist or if those cops, what they're allowed to do to you. They Maybe they can just shoot you. Who knows? So what do you do now? Your job is useless now or your job that you thought was powerful, maybe you were like a lawyer or something, is no longer even a job. It's not a thing you can do. So what do you do? How do you ensure that you will be remembered? Um, and then add corny communist jokes. <laughs> so if you like really, uh, if you like like a few groaners here and there, you're gonna love this. And yeah, I mean, I think it's unlike any play you're gonna see before. This isn't something that I mean. Okay, I'm gonna preface this with no offense to apartment plays. Some of them are really, really good. Those one location shows can be uh, like they can be really moving and, and incredible. But personally, they're not my cup of tea. And this is a, uh, and I'm always careful with this word, but stylistic piece where you've got people, boom, coming in and out. You've got dialogue whipping, pa- whipping very quickly. You've got 
you know, Stalin and a sniveling little guy by his side. You've got uh, bodies that are jumping up off of uh, gurneys to tell jokes. I mean, it's just wild. It's absolutely wild. And I think, you know, anybody who's never seen theater is going to be very shocked. I don't think it's what they'll expect theater is, probably. So, yeah. Now, with your MFA almost wrapped up, Mm -hmm. where are you going next? Yeah, so I'm not entirely sure yet, but at the moment, I'm going to be assistant directing at the Citadel next uh, semester on either the party or the candidate. They're kind of not sure how they're going to do assistant directors on that. They're like, maybe you're on both or maybe you're on one. Who knows? It's kind of a wild uh, project for them. And then I'm in the process of applying to go live in Japan for a while because I do training with... um, in the Suzuki method of actor training, which is uh, Tadashi Suzuki's this really incredible um, theater director, which I recommend any everybody look up and read his books. They're incredible. Basically, Suzuki was noticing that, especially Western actors, but even well, Japanese actors, much less so because they have no in Kabuki training. But Western actors, they just don't do anything with their lower body. It's like they completely forget that it exists. Um, And, I mean, honestly, go watch a play and watch what people do with it. And they probably, and I still talk with this with actors, they shuffle their feet all the friggin' time. All the time. Like, it's constant. And I do it, too. And I've had to try to train myself out of it. And what I see through that and what Suzuki saw through that is a desire to do something with those legs. Um, And energy that is needing to go somewhere. Uh, And if you're expelling energy that you can instead keep and use then don't expel it like unless you're doing it on purpose the idea in suzuki is everything is a choice every movement is specific and therefore a reason it's complete mastery which is near impossible but that's what's fascinating to watch it's to watch someone struggle for perfection that is to me one of the most incredible things you'll ever see um in any type of performance when you see someone who's trying to get it perfect it's what makes it it, it just you're completely enraptured by this. It's it's artistry at its finest. Um, and so the method is about going through a series of very rigorous physical moves while maintaining a fiction. That's really key is that you can't just do these exercises. I mean, you can. I don't know why you'd want to. But you need to maintain that your fiction. And the fiction is something that um, other uh, practice practitioners talk about as well but for Suzuki it doesn't have to just be an image it can be just about anything it can, but it has to be the fiction that you are within the scene something that you want or something that wants you is usually really effective um, and so you do these exercises there's stomping um, there are you know falling and rising from the ground there's a series of uh, movements that one does there's sitting in uh, statues where you sit on the ground and you have to explode out into a shape um, and hold that shape and then go back in really quickly um, on the count of the shanai, which is this long bamboo stick that they use. You sometimes see it in martial arts. Um, and it's all about if you can if you can maintain your fiction in the single most difficult positions you've ever been put in, then when you're on stage, your body can remember that feeling and it can remember that energy and that tension. And you can allow, even in the most relaxed moment, to have this incredible tension within the body. And we often hear tension as like some bad word it's like, oh, you need to be relaxed. But reality is that tension is engaging and it is fascinating. And if you were just fully relaxed on stage, no one would want to look at you. <laughs> um, you want to have the appearance of relaxing, relaxed while, with the intense energy. Uh, but every year in Fredericton, somehow, um, starting once I graduated, there was a one-week workshop in Suzuki and Viewpoints and sometimes just Suzuki. And 
I did it for the three years that it was running, and Cameron Steele of the Toga Company, who translates a lot of Tadashi Suzuki's work, came one year, and it's the most intense training you'll ever do. But I just kind of fell in love with it, and I really want to go work with Suzuki. And Cameron said that, you know, at this point, he's actually starting to want to train directors now. So I thought, well, geez, it's kind of perfect. But I want to live in the country for a bit first, learn the language uh, before jumping into what is, I consider, one of the most rigorous training programs in the world. So I'm kind of like, yeah, let's get used to the culture before I jump into something that's going to, like, break my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely. But that's, uh, that's... that's the plan for now, you know. I'm keeping it kind of loose. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Mm-hmm. I hope the show goes well. Thank you very much. I hope to see everybody out there. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. We're going to play you out with more of Logan Shorney's sound design from Lennons and Balmers. Let's go. That was our arts and culture section, and that's all our time for this episode of The Gateway Presents. We'll see you again in another two weeks. I'm Victoria Chu, online editor of The Gateway at the University of Alberta, and you're listening to The Gateway Presents on CJSR-FM 88.5 Edmonton. Our music is by Disparition and can be found at disparition.info or disparition.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>